All right, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews today. We are in Hebrews chapter 12, and we will be looking at verses 12 through 17. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. Let's hear, hear these words. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single man. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Thus ends our reading of God's infallible word. May all who hear it be able to obtain the grace of God. Before we jump into our passage for today, I, I want to read to you a portion of a letter that's dated from 177 A.D. And this letter is from a church in Vienna, Lyons, uh, and it's addressed to the churches in Asia and Phrygia. And what this letter discusses is the effect that that ten apostates, ten people who had left the faith, the effect that they had on this church. Listen to what was said in this letter. But some appeared who were unprepared and untrained. They were still weak and unable to bear the tension of a great contest. Of these, about ten in number proved abortions, causing great grief and immeasurable sorrow amongst us, and damping the ardor of the others who had not yet been arrested. For these, although they suffered every kind of cruelty, remained nevertheless in the company of the witnesses and did not forsake them. Then all of us were greatly alarmed because of our uncertainty of their confession. We did not fear because of the tortures inflicted, but because we looked to the end and dreaded lest anyone should fall away. I don't know if you could sense the anguish in these words, but, but what is being discussed here is the, the heartache that was felt when, when these ten members of this church renounced their faith in order to avoid persecution. And, and what this letter, letter details for us is that it had two effects. Sorrow, because of their, the uncertainty of the, the confessions of those who had apostatized, as well as a damping of the ardor or a damping of the resolve uh, of the other believers as they had to go through these trials and persecutions that, that came along with ident identifying with Jesus. And so we see both a great sadness as well as a growing timidity. And, and this is what apostasy does. It plants this bitter root within the church's that it touches. You see, oftentimes we think that those who leave the faith only hurt themselves. I mean, after all, it's their eternal fate that's at stake. Yet this neglects the impact 
that such a rejection of Christ has upon the faith of others. How it can cause us sorrow. How it can cause a deep, deep anguish for those who, who love these people who, who have turned away from Christ. And the question that we must answer as God's people is this. How are we, as Christ's church, supposed to respond to those who apostatize? What, what is the grief that, that is caused when, when the ones that we love suddenly deny Jesus? Do we minimize such things? Or, or should they worry us and, and cause us to despair? Or perhaps there's some other middle ground approach that we should be taking. I mean, how do we respond as God's church? These are the questions that our author tries to answer for us today. Now, for the, the past two weeks, we have been talking about the challenges that there are when we decide to live by faith. And if you remember, there were two illustrations that our author used to encourage us. One, the illustration of a race, and two, the illustration of a father's discipline. With, with the former, we, we saw that, that we're called to run, run this race by looking to, the, looking to Christ. Remember? It's, it's Jesus. He, he, he teaches us. What did he teach us? To, to set aside that... Uh, every weight and every sin that clings so closely, those things that hold us back. And he, he teaches us to endure hardship. And then he teaches us to keep our focus ahead, right? We are to look to Christ, to that future promise that, that he is bringing to his people. And in our other illustration, what did we see? The illustration of a father's discipline. What did we see there? We, we saw that the that as we experience these trials and tribulations that, that will eventually come our way, we should view these things as if, as if they are coming from the Lord himself. That they are his fatherly way of training us so that we might become holy. So that we might obtain that, that peaceful fruit of righteousness. But more than that, we should, we should understand that his discipline is also an indication of our validation, right? Of his acceptance of us. Just as a father only disciplines those who are his legitimate children, so too the Lord only disciplines those he loves. And that should bring us encouragement. But unfortunately, not, not everyone heeds the advice that our author gives, am I right? And there will come times when those who claim to be Christians will end up falling away by committing apostasy. Now, I've used this word more than once, so let's, let's define it before we move on. What, what does it mean to commit apostasy? Apostasy is the abandon, abandonment or, or the renunciation of something which you once claimed to believe. And biblically speaking, to commit apostasy is to renounce Jesus Christ. And so an apostate, that is someone who has fallen away from the faith. And this is exactly what 
our author is dealing with in our text for today. Those who have become apostate. Those who have left the faith. And so the question we're trying to answer is, how are we as God's people supposed to handle such matters? What are we to do when, when these things happen to us? Let's, let's dive into our passage and see what we can learn. Look at, look at verses 12 and 13. The author says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. <clears throat> Now, in order for us to truly understand what our author is communicating with these words, we must gain a, a, a genuine knowledge of some Old Testament texts. For, it, for in our passage today, not just here, but the rest of it as well, our author will refer to three different sections of Old Testament scriptures. And, and these three sections, they, they become the bases for his argument. And, and so we see this in this first reference in these two, first two verses as well. For what is written here is pretty much a paraphrase of the words that we find in the book of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> Listen to these words. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. What we see Isaiah describing here is the renewal of a parched and dry land. But not only is it the renewal of a land, but it is also the renewal of a people in that land as well. In our world today, we, we have advanced in our agricultural methods so much that, that for many of us, we, we never get to see, nor do we care to see where our food comes from. Am I right? It's just there. We go to the store. We go to the restaurant, we get the food we want, but we have no idea where it comes from. And so a land that is parched means very little to us. But to pretty much all, every other generation, 
a passage such as this, it speaks loudly. For as the land goes, so do the people. And so what we see in this passage is this beautiful, prophetic picture of God restoring his people after years and years of great desolation. It is a picture of hope. It is a picture of salvation. And that is why the people were commanded to strengthen their weak hands and and to make firm their, their feeble knees. You see, these, these drooping hands and these weak knees, they're a picture of exhaustion, right? Uh, of, of, of people who have become dis, disheartened and, and discouraged because of all the trials that have come their way. It's an image of, of a people who just want to toss in the towel, towel and just give up. And yet now they are encouraged to, to strengthen themselves to endure just a little bit longer. And why are they to endure? Because their God is about to bring restoration. In fact, God will provide a pathway forward, a highway called the way of holiness. This is is a path that will give safe passage even for a fool because this road is so straight It is so easy to follow that even those who have a tendency to wander off, they can't get lost. And this is the encouragement that our author, author to the Hebrews, brings to this beaten down church. He is telling them to stand strong, to stay on that path that God has placed them upon. You see, it is only through Christ. Only through Christ that they can truly be restored. So no matter how much they were suffering in this life, no matter how much loss they had to endure, their God would restore them. He would restore unto them everything that had been taken away. What an encouraging message to those who have felt the sorrow that apostasy brings. That somehow God would make their dry land fruitful again. That there would be a harvest even when it seemed like nothing would grow. I mean, this is what this church was going through. They had seen friends, best friends, maybe family members, leave the church, deny Jesus Christ, and now they were left to deal with that. And so our author wants to give them this message of hope. This is a message for us as well, is it not? Listen, even even though you do not face the same type of persecution that, that those believers back then did, if you remain in the church long enough, you will find that over time there will be those who will leave the faith for one reason or another. There will be those who apostatize. And this, my friends, can be very, very disheartening, particularly when it's those whom you love. I think back to the, my early days as a Christian, back when I was at University of Michigan, and I was a part of this fast-growing church. And part of the reason that we grew so much was because we were so dedicated to getting the gospel out to, to as many college students as we could possibly speak to. 
And throughout that time, we, we saw a lot of folks come to Christ. And yet today, some 25 years or more later, many of those same people, those people that we led to Christ, are now vocally active speaking against Christ and against his church. And to this day, it, it, it saddens my heart to see such a fall. And what led them to apostatize? There's probably a lot of reasons. I can't say for sure. And yet, I don't want to give up on them. I don't want to say they've gone their way. And there's no hope for them. For I know the power of my God. And I know that he can change even the hardest of hearts. And this is why we are to to battle, to battle our sorrow. We must strengthen our resolve. The reason we do that is because we trust in God, trust that He is still at work. That's why we're encouraged to lift our drooping hands, right? To, to strengthen our weak knees. It is why we must remain on that straight path, believing that God will accomplish His saving work. But what does that straight path look like? Look, look at our next two verses. Look at, look at verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> our author says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, with, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, these verses can be a bit confusing, so let's try to break it down a little bit so that we can understand what's going on here. The, the, the context of this passage and the context of these verses, our author is speaking to those within the church, and he's speaking about those within the church. And so when our author says that we are to strive for peace with everyone, what he is referring to, the everyone he is referring to, are those who would already claim to be Christians. We are to strive for peace with other churchgoers. But not just for peace, but for holiness as well. Now, if you remember from last week, we saw these same two words grouped together when we talked about the discipline of the Lord. Look, look again earlier in the passage. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is what it says. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so what our author is communicating to us now is that we are to help one another. Help one another understand that these trials that, that, that come our way, they are for our own good. That they will produce within us the holiness of God, as well as the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
So what does this mean? That means when we see a, a person within the church who is struggling with discouragement, who is battling sadness, and maybe that sadness comes from someone who has left the faith, someone that they love, then we need to come alongside them and help them in their troubles. We need to, we need to point them to the truth, the truth that they are God's child. And that God has a perfect, a, a, a purpose during these difficult times. And that purpose is for their good. But our author tells us to do more than just encourage one another, does he not? For, for what, did, what did he say in verse 15? He said this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is a charge to share the gospel with one another. Think about that for a moment. Now this may seem backwards to us, right? For, for we're supposed to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, right? To, the, to those outside the church. Yes, we're to do that. But we are to proclaim the gospel to the church as well. We are to make certain that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Here's what you need to understand about the Christian faith. Not only are we saved, not only are we justified by the grace of God, yet God maintains us by his grace as well. He sanctifies us through his gospel message. And so as God's people, we are to bathe ourselves daily in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to remind one another of all that Jesus did for us. That he lived that sinless life that we could not live. And though he was innocent, he then chose to die in our place so that God's wrath could be satisfied. And that we could receive forgiveness. And then we are to remind one another that Jesus rose from the dead victoriously, right? And that it is through that resurrection, it is through that empty tomb that, that, that he brings to us that certain hope. The hope that one day we too will rise from the dead. That we will be with our king for all eternity. This is a message that, that should be on our minds and, and, and on our lips on a daily basis. For this is how God grows us in our faith. It is how he produces holiness within us. It's how he sanctifies us. And, and yet this sanctifying process isn't the only reason we should be sharing the gospel with one another. For we are also to make certain that no one fails to obtain to the grace of God. Listen, there is only one person who knows for certain if someone is truly saved. And that person is God. Those friends of mine that have now apostatized, who have now rejected Christ... If you would have asked me 25 years ago if they were saved, I would have said, absolutely. And yet today they demonstrate the exact opposite. And I think the reason that they fell was because back then 
we as a church, and I was a part of this, we didn't have a clear understanding of the importance of proclaiming the gospel message within the church. Sure, we, we proclaimed the grace of God to the unbelieving world, and yet we left that grace at the door on Sunday mornings. And so there were many, many among us who were never really saved. And instead of bringing them the gospel, we, we had placed upon their shoulders this heavy, heavy burden of God's law. And now today we are experiencing the fruit of this bitter root. Look at, look at Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 20. It says this, Beware. You've got to love a passage that starts, Beware. Am I right? Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the, from today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. I mean, here we see the, the Old Testament version of apostasy, do we not? Those who claim to be of the people of God and yet worshipped idols and foreign gods. God tells us that they will, would become this root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. In other words, they, they would become this contaminating and unhealthy plant within the garden that was the nation of Israel. And so in their unrepentant hearts, they, they would not only affect themselves, but they would also have an impact on all those who were around them. And did you notice how God described these people? That, that, that he hears the words of the covenant and thinks he will be safe, though he walks in the stubbornness of his own heart. Some of those friends of mine who I spoke of earlier, that those friends who have apostatized, if you would ask them today if they were a Christian, they would not hesitate to tell you yes, even though they have rejected the gospel message. Now, not all of them, mind you, but some of them. Now, why do you think this is the case? I think part of the reason is because a long time ago, another Christian had told them that they were saved when they were really not. And afterwards, they were never really challenged in their beliefs. And because they were never really challenged, they just continued to think that they were safe even though they had spurned the true gospel message. It was only a few months ago that, that, that I had the opportunity to chat, to chat with one of these friends of mine. 
And, and this person had, had, has fallen into the trap of believing that, that Jesus somehow isn't concerned with, with the sin of homosexuality. She, she actually believes that the Bible okays the practice. And so I challenged her. I, I said, show me the passages that state this. And when I gave her that challenge, she came up empty. In fact, she admitted to me that, that I had been the first to actually take her up on such a challenge. And what's more, when, when, when I then demonstrated to her that the, that the Bible clearly denounces such practices, she had to admit to herself that she no longer believed in the authority of the Bible. Now, while this saddens me, and it, it does sadden me greatly, I do believe that it is a step in the right direction. For she is now beginning to see that she has rejected the authority of Christ and that she needs to repent. Dear friends, this, this is the type of thing that we need to be doing in our churches. We need to hold one another accountable accountable to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to see to it that, that no one fails to obtain to the grace of God. And though this may be hard, though this may be unpleasant, it is a loving thing to do. Because if we don't, we're going to end up leaving people with this false notion that they are saved when they are truly lost. And just like a bitter root that taints everything it touches, when, when, when these things go unchecked, it can lead to a diluted gospel message. And then the next thing you know, you will have a church filled with, with both timid believers, those who, who don't know how to take a stand for Christ, as well as unashamed unbelievers who think that they are saved. And this is the reason our author had urged this early church to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He wanted them to watch out for one another. To make sure that they were really in the faith. Lest they follow that same path of those who had apostatized. And this leads to his last warning. Look at, look at verses 16 and 17. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here our author uses the example of Esau to drive his point home. That when you flirt with the fires of hell, you're bound to get burned. You see, Esau was the son of Isaac. And he was Jacob's twin. And even though he was Jacob's twin, he, he was the firstborn. And so... He was the rightful heir to the inheritance. He was the rightful heir to God's blessing, to God's promises. 
And yet when we read through the account of his life, we discover that, that, that he spurned that blessing by treating it with casual disdain. If you don't know the story, let me fill you in real quick. One day Esau was out hunting. He returned home. He was famished. Well, his brother Jacob was sitting there. He had some lentil stew, right? And yet Jacob, he wasn't going to hand it over to his brother. This, this was a loving family. We'll just put it that way. Um, he wasn't going to hand it over to his brother unless Esau had promised to him to sell him his birthright. Now, whether, whether Esau was serious or not, he, he ended up making the deal with his brother. And in this way, Esau played the fool. Because what he did is he, he threw away something that was of great, great value for something that was common. And the reason he did so was because he was only thinking about his temporary needs. You see, it was his cravings. It was his stomach. It was, it was the, the, the urge in the moment that outweighed the gift of God, that outweighed this promised future blessing. I mean, think about that. For, for a worthless meal, Esau traded away his birthright, his, his inheritance. Is this not what apostasy, apostasy truly is? It, it is trading away the gift of God that comes through Jesus Christ for something that is worthless and can only bring a momentary pleasure, a, a momentary relief. And this, my friends, is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. For what does our author say? Esau found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. To show you this, look at, look at Genesis 27, verses 30 through 40. Here, here we see what happened later in Esau's life after his brother Jacob tricked his father into giving him the blessing. Look at what the text says. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came in, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? 
Bless me, even me also, oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword shall you live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. I don't know if you could hear the heartbreak in Esau's voice. But when the reality sunk in that the blessing was gone. What does the text say? It says he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And even though he was his father's favorite, there was nothing his father could do. For the blessing had already been given away. And it was too late for Esau to repent. And that is the exact point that our author wants to drive home to us. That only bitter tears and rejection await those who choose to sell out their, their eternal inheritance. An inheritance that can only come through Jesus Christ. And that is the point. Those who are apostate, those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, who reject it for this momentary relief, who reject it even though they know the truth, they are eternally lost. For if they, if they choose not to repent, if they choose not to turn away from their sins before the blessing arrives, then they will run out of time. And even though they cry out, even though they, 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 they plead with this great and bitter cry, they will not be heard, for it will be too late. They will be lost. Take a moment and take a good look around this room. Look at the faces that are in front of you and behind you, to the side of you, to the right, to the left. These are the faces of people that you love. These are the faces of people that you hold dear. How devastating would it be to see even just one of these faces turn away from Christ? To not be able to repent because it's too late. Brothers, sisters, this is why we as a church must be vigilant. I, I hope you understand that this job of making sure the people who are all around us know this gospel message, that's just not the job of the pastor. I hope you know that. Our author is speaking to the whole of the church. This calling is for each and every one of us. So what are we to do? We are to lift our drooping hands. We are to strengthen our weak knees. And we are to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's what Christ calls us to do. And that's how we love one another.
We bring the gospel to them. And we challenge them when they are unrepentant. Can we do this as a church? Can we be God's people? I hope we can. Let us pray. Father, we, we come to you this day knowing that all of our hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that we cannot come before you unless we go through him. For he is our only hope. He is the only one who can offer to us true forgiveness. He is the only one who can satisfy your wrath. Because he is the only one who died for our sins. But we don't just look to his death. We look to his resurrection as well. For it is in that empty tomb that, that death has been defeated and our victory has been secured. And so we ask now that you would strengthen us. That when discouragement settles in, that you would point us to the hope that we have in you. To the salvation that you bring. To that straight path, the way of holiness. And that you'd help us to be vigilant as we watch over our brothers and sisters. That you would help us to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us in these efforts. And so we ask for you to fill us. Fill us with your strength. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.